AHA Process webinar podcast series. In this installment, AHA Process author and consultant Lucy Shaw discusses solutions for churches that feel helpless in the face of poverty. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here, and I am so glad that you would choose to honor us by attending this morning. I think what we have to offer this morning um, is useful for everybody, no matter what sector you happen to be in. And the topic, of course, is, is your church helpless in the face of poverty? Really? And, And interestingly, sometimes it probably feels that way, doesn't it? It's like, what's going on in my own church? And of course, the other premise for us is that you have this treasure chest of tools from AHA Process. If you have just done one thing with Ridges Out of Poverty, if you've just been certified in one class, if you've just read one book, you have something to offer people. And one of the best venues, of course, is church. So in this webinar, what we're going to look at is why and how Bridges Key Points and Constructs apply in the church setting. Maybe we've limited our thoughts of application in our churches to getting ahead. Uh, Secondly, I want us to look, we're going to look briefly at scarcity thinking and church folk. Hmm. How to check yourself and how to help them check themselves. Uh, Exploring and selecting the right gifts from the AHA Process treasure chest. Uh, We really have so many things in our treasure chest at Bridges, and sometimes we forget that there's more in that box than we know about. Uh, And then, most importantly, If you get engaged on just this idea of using the Bridges tools in your church, well, it's pretty important to know how you're going to market those strategies and how you're going to really get people to be fully engaged and on board with you. So now for this webinar, I see that there are people from all sorts of of places on this webinar Uh, So here's what I want you to um, think about is put your church hat on, okay? (laughs) Put your church hat on. Put your church lens on for this webinar, all right? And then most importantly, one of the other reasons I decided to do this is because the more you, as a facilitator, use bridges, the better you become at using bridges. Sometimes, you know, we get certified and then we're not able to really use what we've learned. Well, you are not helpless either on that instance because you can take it and use it in your church. Does that make sense? If it does, just let's see some hands raised here. Okay, now, so... That takes us right into this, right? I've got all of this training from AHA Process. How might I use it? How might I better use it, in fact? Well, what if when we talk about the Great Recession of 2008, 
What if you've recovered, but there are still so many others who have not, and frankly, they may not without your help or without the help of your church. Now, many of the unrecovered are at work. They're at the store. (laughs) You know, you see them in the grocery store. They're in your neighborhood. They're all around us. And sometimes because we feel like we can't help them, we put blinders on so that we can't really see them. And what if, what if it's just heavy on your heart to do something about it? I, I know it's always heavy on my heart. And I've done getting ahead in my church. And I know <laughs> that there are some people there who uh, you don't really know that they have not recovered. So do you know who this guy is? This is Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber. Now, Willie Sutton uh, allegedly said uh, his law, Sutton's law, was pretty much the process of considering the obvious first. And so they say that he said when he was asked why did he rob banks, his answer was, that's where the money is. Obvious, right? So why go to a church to offer the treasures from the tool chest? Well, because that's where the people are. Huh? Okay. And guess what? You just might be the angel with the answers. How about that? You get to be an angel right now. All right. So, you know, one of the um, objectives here was to test our thinking about scarcity. Now, this test, this slide that you're seeing here and the one that follows comes from the framework uh, slide deck. And I love it because it challenges us on what is our own personal experience with class. And so what I challenge you with is this. (laughs) If you ask the choir, what would they have to say to these questions? You know that old saying, preaching to the choir? Well, I don't want anybody out there to feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but sometimes we take for granted what the answers to this are particularly for people in our own churches. Have you ever lived in a trailer home? Have you ever lived in a home larger than 10,000 square feet? Have you ever lived in an inner city? Have you traveled to a third world country? Now see, this first page to me seems a little more middle class, huh? But boy, let's go to the second page where the questions really get a little deeper. Have you used public transportation to get to work or school? Uh, Do you know an adult who's never had a full-time job? Sometimes we make assumptions within our churches that we really know things about people when in fact we don't. And sometimes we make assumptions that uh, we know something about the people who live in the neighborhood around the church. And I know in my community, There are many churches where the people built the church originally 
in a poverty in a neighborhood that was middle class, which eventually turned into a poverty neighborhood. And so they still come to the church, but guess what? They drive in and they do what? They drive out, right? So the question is, I hope you've been looking at these questions while I've been talking, because this is a good way to measure scarcity thinking in your church. It's just a quick and dirty way to say, hmm, what do we really know about people who are living in unstable, under-resourced environments? So here's the thing. If you were to do this, you might find out that the choir may not know as much as you think they know, that the choir may have some folk living in genteel poverty. <laughs> I was a school teacher once, and uh, as a school teacher, I really noticed that most of the teachers actually lived off the teacher's credit union. So, you know, we were all impressed that a school teacher just works nine months a year and then she's off the next three. But what do they do to survive during that three? They borrow every year from the credit union. And so they're living from paycheck to paycheck and they're in debt up to their eyeballs. And so I call that genteel poverty. It looks like something else. But if you were to open the doors into that person's heart and home, you might find that they're living in genteel poverty. Now, the thing is, the choir is really there to back up the pastor and his message. What's the message? And then the choir might also be in the pews and not know any more than the other choir members, right? Now, if you're looking for a new choir, because really, if the goal of the choir is to back up the pastor and his message, well, it's also to get that message out. And most churches certainly have a purpose, huh? And so the new choir could really be outside, outside of the walls of the church. They could be in the neighborhood. They could be on the way to church. They could be in the school in the neighborhood. They could be in the businesses in the neighborhood. They could be at the police station. They could be in the jail. Maybe we just need some new choir members. And the challenge is, how do we attract them? And what do we give them? Now, <clears throat> many of you have seen this continuum of resources from scarcity to abundance. And many of us, particularly if we do church work, we've heard the verse that, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health. Well, so churches are about what? Helping people to prosper. And so when we look at this wonderful little slide here, we, we get an idea about what it means to be under-resourced and the opposite if I were resourced. And the thing about being under-resourced is that we do end up in isolation. And when we are forced not to speak of what's going on in our lives, that creates another form of isolation, huh? And then that is followed up with some dysfunction and thought polarization. 
I like that thing about thought polarization because usually when we think about scarcity thinking, what we really think about is thinking only one way. It's this way. And the reason it's this way is because I've never seen it any other way, particularly in generational poverty, right? So what faith is, is, is the substance of things hoped for and yet not seen. So how do I hope for something I've never seen? Huh? Yeah. So my thoughts are then absolutely polarized. I don't seek other options, but you know these things because you're certified in something related to bridges, right? Or you've read a book. So here are some present day challenges for some churches. Of course, all churches have some denominational tenets. There are some things that being a member of a particular denomination say that you do. One may be that you're, you, you're, you're too evangelized. One may be that you're just there to comfort. One may be that you're a church that teaches. Uh, and so those are always things that we're trying to meet within a church. But here are some bigger things that are really more current. Relevancy. How are we relevant in our community? Why would people come? Why would they show up? Huh? Um, outreach. How do we do outreach? And the thing about outreach is that who are we going to reach out to? Will we, will we just reach out to the folk in our own church? Or will we reach out to people beyond the walls of the church? And if so, how do we do that? Safety. You know, safety is a real big deal. Safety is a big deal in our nation today. We hear the things about Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. What do we do? What if your church is in a poverty zone and you're kind of scared? You drive in really carefully and you drive out really fast. So safety is a real, real issue not just for those people who may be engaged in crime, but is an issue for us too, huh? The other one is there are many churches who um, have a really burden for attracting families because all that's left are older people. And an interesting thing, the more those older people die out, the less money you collect, huh? Because younger people aren't as apt to give in the way that older people do. Now, the other one is, what do you do? How do you build your capacity for practical compassion in action? You can't go out and reach everybody. So I think that Bridges offers us some practical ways to express our compassion. Ha! Huh. Now, this is always a biggie. You need money to meet your mission. And that's true for many of you on this line who are in social services work. You need money to meet your mission. How do you do that in a church? How do you attract and give those members something to do who are willing to tithe of their time, their talent, and their treasure? What do you have for them to do? They want to work. And you're the angel who can show up with a way for them to work. 
So why bridges? Now I want to make the case for using bridges. Well, my first thing would be why not? Now, before I go too far with this, we have a couple of polls and I want to go back. And the first one was, have you used bridges in your church? So let's get some votes here. Okay. So 38.8% or 14 people say, yeah, I've used this in my church, but 61% have not. And so what I want to make happen on this webinar is that you will consider using it. Now let's put that second poll up. So clearly there are more people here on this call who really are working actively in the faith-based sector. And that's a good thing. Uh, yet, what, only half of or less than half have been using bridges in church. Thank you, David. You can take it down. Um, what I want to make happen today is that you will rethink how you might use bridges. So let's make the case. So a few of our key, key points. Economic class is relative. And I kind of talked about that earlier when I was talking about asking those questions of the choir and everybody else and talked about genteel poverty. Now, here's something that we always have to remember. Churches are institutions and businesses. So what does that mean? That means that they operate using middle-class norms and the hidden rules of middle-class. So maybe there's so much that we can share with people who just don't know what we know. And economic class is a continuous line. It's just not a clear-cut distinction. That's why you never know who you're sitting next to in church. And you can make a judgment with your eyeballs, but that just probably is not going to be sufficient. And generational poverty and situational poverty are different. You know, sometimes in church, I've noticed in my church, we're really, really quick to jump and help people in situational poverty. But helping people in generational poverty can be a bit more of a challenge, right? And the more we understand how class affects us and are open to hearing about how it affects others, the more effective we can be. And in church, what is it that we want to be effective at, huh? In many, we say we, we want to bring souls into the kingdom or whatever. So we do want to be as effective as we possibly can. Now, I like this. So, you know, in, in Bridges, we talk about the lens. Well, today I'm sort of focused on your church lens. And here's what I'm going to ask you. What color are your church lens? Huh? So this is all, these are all of those things that when we talk about uh, those key concepts for uh, constructs, these are the key constructs. You notice that I did not put all of them up. I just chose a few of them. But I like number two, at the intersection of poverty with other social disparities, we address inequalities in access to resources. You know, it doesn't matter if our church is predominantly white, Ethiopian, African-American, 
uh, Italian, it doesn't matter. Those ethnic things, those racial things, those gender, all of that doesn't matter when what we're really talking about is access to resources. That's what stabilizes people. And that seems to me like something that a church might want to do. And so then, of course, that it naturally follows the third one, that we define poverty as the extent to which a person. Now, notice this. Or an institution or a community does without resources. Within our institutions called churches, sometimes the church is suffering and doing without resources. So you can look at that list later. Um, Now, here's what I want to know. What's in your aha treasure chest? (laughs) Let's talk about it. So these are the five books that I just want to have you consider today. There are so many more. And at the end of this, you, you, uh, David's going to leave the slides up and you will be able, if you're really interested, if, if one of these books just kind of tweaks your interest and you've never read it, you can click on any one of these books and order it right at the end of this seminar, this webinar, because Wow, you know, that that one right there, what every church member should know, that might be the first one you start with, huh? (laughs) But you know something about all of these books, or maybe I'm going to help you to want to know something about them. Now, at the convention that we just left last week, was it? Wow, time flies. Ruby gave the attendees a wristband that had these had the two slides that I'm about to show you on that wristband. And I thought it was a wonderful way to look at our resources, those things that you have available to use to help your organization or to help, help your church, to help yourself. And so it's divided into solutions for the resourced, versus solutions for the under-resourced. And David and I were talking about this the other day, and he says he likes to think of the column solutions for the resourced as internal, organizational kinds of resources, whereas the other one is for external environments to the organization. But what you will notice is that I've mixed them up. The five books that I chose, I'm suggesting that whether they are for the resourced or the under-resourced, they are still great choices for the church, depending on how you use them and your understanding. Okay, so I'm going to pause just a moment and, and, and move in a different direction. So before you ask me, I want to talk about the keys to engaging with these resources. What I mean by that is how do you do it? How do you how do you get something started in the church? Well, to me, 
I think one of the most important opportunities that using these resources in your church brings to you is the opportunity to use other people's money. So if you want to do this, you could always partner with a business in the neighborhood. You could partner with a bank in the neighborhood. You could partner with a school in the neighborhood where your church is. But when we talk about finding money for mission, here's a way to do it. Go out there and tell somebody, we're going to do this. We're going to do this for the neighborhood. Don't you want to come and help pay for it? Help us do it. And in the process, be known as someone who cares about the neighborhood. Emphasize the challenge it meets, particularly when you are talking or presenting it to the church. So will this help bring relevancy to our programs? Is it a new form of outreach? Will it help this whole thing that people come to church scared and weary to death about safety, their own safety, the safety of their families? And then can we attract families using new kinds of programs, teaching something new and different, sharing something really that impacts individual lives, building capacity for practical compassion in action. How do we show people that we are a compassionate church? And of course, the more people we get in, the more likely, hopefully, we can continue to do more and more because maybe giving will go up. Maybe some people haven't been giving because they didn't have something they really wanted to give for. Now, then you can attract those members who want to do something more, and hopefully you can meet your denominational tenants. So this this is something here that is really important. And if you attended my workshop at the convention, you heard me talk about PIBs, Partners in Believing. So I do a lot of work in my church. And in my church, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what kind of group that I'm doing, I always make sure that we have PIBs, Partners in Believing. Now, you can have a PIB or a PPIB. Now, here's what a PPIB is. A posse of Partners in Believing. (laughs) So you might need a whole posse just to try to put on something with one of these books because you can't do it by yourself. But now here's what partners in believing do. It's that person or those people who can hold your belief in the impossible when you can't. When you're trying to start something new, and I want to tell you what, this PIB, this PIB, you can have them at work. There's nothing wrong with having partners in believing at work. Now, they pray with you and for you. They plan and dream with you. Boy, wouldn't it be good to have some folk doing that? And that together we make a commitment to be PIBs. See, we're committed first to being PIBs. That way you're not begging people to come and work on this committee with you. You're saying, can you be my PIB for this project? They bring you ideas and support you in the implementation. They depend on you for emotional intellectual and spiritual support. So it is a circle. They're not just giving to you. You're giving to them as well. 
They don't compete with you. And see, that's one of the little things that happens with us in all kinds of organizations, whether it's a church or work or whatever. People have a project and then those who are working on it compete with one another. Well, you if you establish that we're doing this as a PIB or a PPIB, the rules are we're not in competition with one another. And they are there for you in good times and bad. So, so when it's working out, they're there praying, holding it. And when it's not working, they're still there praying and holding it. You like that PIB thing? I do. So steps toward the dream. First, you want to select your topic, your book, and the most appropriate target audience. Maybe it's not the whole church. Maybe it's just kids. Maybe it's just boys. Maybe it's just girls. Maybe it's just the elderly. You will decide based upon the book that you choose. Find your partners in believing. Develop a budget. One of the best profiles of a budget that we have is in the Getting Ahead Facilitators Manual. And I would recommend that you look at it. Now, you got to present it to the pastor and the church leadership. You got to select. Now, before you go, you need to have done all of these things. So I might have put presenting to the pastor and the church leadership last, but it depends on how you do what you do. Select the best venue, the best time, and the best day. And then select an appropriate community or church partner. Remember what I said about using other people's money? This is where you look for someone to help you do this thing. Plan for sharing the expenses. That means if you have a partner, who pays for what? Now identify a facilitator and a coordinator from the church. And if you have a partner, You want them to send somebody to be a partner because after all, this gives them visibility. Now, recruit and interview your class participants. See, sometimes people will say, I want to take this class. It's a good idea to sit down. If you're the facilitator, sit down and talk to them and say, so is this a good class for you? Why do you think you want to do this? And you want to figure out that they're going to actually show up. Now, then you just do it. You've got your permissions. You do it. You maintain that momentum. And one of the most important things is that you celebrate. And when I do these sorts of things at church, I celebrate throughout. I don't just wait till the end to celebrate. So the celebration at the end is bigger than the ones we've been doing all along. One way we celebrate is we take pictures and we put them somewhere on a bulletin board where everybody else in church who's not doing this gets to see what great fun we're having. And then you make a decision. Do I want to do it again? If I want to do it again, do I want to do a different book? Do I want to do it with a bigger group, a different group? But it is such a cool thing to do. Now, those five books that I selected, why would you want to use tactical communication? Remember that we said that safety is a huge issue in America right now. You cannot turn the news on in any large city, possibly small, without seeing something that 
threatens you and threatens your peace. And so this is a way to help address that in the church. Now, this book is actually written for firefighters and policemen. However, it is a different viewpoint for your church members and a way for them to think about it from the other side. Why is that person behaving the way he or she is as an officer of the law? But it's really a good one to think about and to allow uh, dialogue around what's in that book. Now, what every church member should know about poverty, you notice (laughs) my reason for that is kind of a duh, really? Well, that's just something we ought to know. You know, when I've done getting ahead classes, when we get to about the third or fourth class, there's this huge aha moment where people in that class come from the socioeconomic class of poverty, instability, being under-resourced. But guess what? It is always a surprise when they find out that (laughs) that's where they are or when they begin to find out why they are there. And so this is just an awesome sort of book for us to read in the church so that we understand uh, why things work the way they work or some of the reasons why things work the way they work. The next book, Hidden Rules of Class at Work. Now, this one is on the resourced side and probably was written to be used um, in the workplace. But you know what? You have some professionals in your church who would do well to be conversant in all of the things that are in this book. And it's just another way of thinking about getting ahead and thriving in the workplace during shaky times. Now, this is a favorite of mine, Boys in Crisis. Wow, this is such a scary time for boys living in poverty. And I want to tell you, it's just as scary now for the girls. And so this book can refer to girls as well. But there are so many boys. At our church, we have um, a Saturday where, well, every Saturday of the month, all of the people in the neighborhood are allowed to come to our church. They play basketball. We offer classes. They work. They can make money doing things around the church. And we have at least 50 to 100 kids every single Saturday from around the neighborhood. And most of them are young men who simply have nothing else to do. And this is a place where they come looking for role models. So Boys in Crisis is an awesome book to offer. Now, how much of yourself do you own? Well, listen here. This one, everybody's got some sort of pain going on in their lives. And uh, it's a great book. In fact, I think next month, is it, that um, Ruby and Amelia, who wrote this book, will be doing a webinar as well. Now. Here's an interesting thing. 
What if you say, I want to use this secular book here in the church, and uh, someone says to you, well, look, these books aren't scriptural. You can't use these. Well, don't be afraid to use your own personal and professional experiences related to the book and related to how reading that book may have enriched your own faith. Because many, many times, I will tell you that when I began to work with AHA Process and got certified in practically everything they've got, each time that I read a new book, got certified in something new, I was able to see my faith in a new light. I was able to exercise my faith in a new way with some information that I could take and apply scripture to. So, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when I use these books, I got to tell you, Lynn, Lynn, when I do this, I add scripture so that when I'm teaching something, I can say, now, you know, this is pretty much in line with this verse in the Bible that says, da-da-da-da-da-da. And of course, you know what? When somebody tells you that it's not scriptural, you know, you can invite them to be a pib. Would you join my posse of partners in believing and help me to find the scripture that we can use that applies to what's being said in this book? And if you can't find it, well, okay. Y'all got to figure out how, what, well, what's missing and add it and use scripture to demonstrate the why when you write or present your proposal to the membership or to the pastor or to the whomever gets to make those decisions, the leadership of the church, use scripture to demonstrate why you want to do this thing, why you want to use this particular book why it's important to do it. Why does this matter in your church? Why is this a good resource for your church, the people in it, the people around it? All right. So I'm done, believe it or not. So having heard all of this, let's ask the question again. Is your church helpless in the face of poverty? Really? Really? We're going to take five or ten minutes and take any questions you might have. I did see one question earlier. Um, so so I see Paula, Paula said this is a very interesting approach to utilizing our resources, and she's thanking us. And, and my question for Paula would be, is this a new way of thinking about it, and would you use one of these? Would you use this approach? And so while Paul is typing, Jennifer says, if I had to choose one resource besides the Bible to read, which one would I choose? Are you meaning the resources in the AHA treasure chest? Hmm. You know, if, if I was going to read something from the AHA treasure chest that I thought might help me in the church, it would be the one what every church should know about poverty. 
that's if I really wanted to address that as something that we need to understand in our church. And it would have a lot to do with the kinds of programs that we already have, the kinds of work that we're already doing, if in fact we are doing outreach um, and what's on our hearts for doing it. Are we doing it in the right spirit or with a good understanding of those that we are attempting to help? So that's sort of my thoughts about it. I would kind of also say, uh, oh, and Paula says she surely will. She's currently in conversation with a member of the church that has concern uh, about folks who use handouts from the church but do not join Sunday worship. Wow, I'm glad you got it. Okay, and if there's any other way uh, we can help you, please do so. I would also recommend that you go back to that slide with the list of books on it. There may be one that really helps you to um, understand these concepts a little better. Uh, Melissa, how do we engage various churches in the same community? One of the easiest ways is many pastors have uh, pastoral associations within the city. And so when I want something to happen, engaging another church, I get my pastor to take it to that association and then together it's him. So first he's got to be sold on whatever it is I'm talking about doing, but then I have him to go and sell it to his peers who then say to their congregation, we're going to do this with Mount Moriah or, you know, or whatever your church name is. Does that make sense for you? It's just, remember, a church is still an institution. Hmm. And they work just like institutions. And so you want a relationship with the boss. The boss at the church is the pastor. (laughs) When we did Getting Ahead at our church, we did it with a bank. And now it happened to be a bank where I'm the chairman of the board. But our church... Uh, provided the venue, the food, uh, the bank provided the materials, i.e. the books and every other kind of material that we needed, and the gift cards. We use gift cards to pay uh, the participants. And that was the perfect partnership. It was just perfect. And yes, Connie, if your church is in poverty, I I think this might be a way to do some things. And at your church, maybe you start with a getting ahead group or maybe not because, you know, you would definitely need a partner to help to to pay uh, the participants during the process. But wow, uh, I hope you can think about this and use something, maybe start with something small, something that you can just do for a little while. If there are more children, do something that helps the children. If there are more older adults, do something that helps them. I like Amelia and Ruby's book, uh, How Much of Yourself Do You Own? 
Maybe you just need to give comfort. Maybe you just need some structured comfort in your church as people are really carrying that burden of poverty. Wow, Jennifer, that is awesome. Whoa, wow, whoa. <laughs> and I think, I think Idra, we, we talked about how we engage multiple churches in a community. And Tom and Jennifer um, might have something to share with you on that. And perhaps you guys can um, exchange some information on that. Yeah. And Corinne is saying that she partnered with the United Way and the Methodist Church. Uh, we have a very strong United Way who does some awesome things with Bridges. Lucy, we'd like to thank you for your time. So at this point, if there aren't any more questions, we'll let you go and thank Lucy one more time for joining us and sharing with us today. This has been an AHA Process webinar podcast. Visit ahaprocess.com for more. Royalty-free music courtesy of sound.com.